Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we've been saying today, we celebrate Reformation Sunday. And today is not particularly about Martin Luther or any particular movement or even an inspiring historical event. All of those things are part of the Reformation, of course, but but that's not why we dedicate a Sunday in our church here to its celebration. Instead, what we celebrate today is what the Reformation is all about, the rediscovering the importance of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so today and every day as we live as Christians, we live in the legacy of the Reformation, which is that we focus our lives on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Because today it is still all about Jesus, only Jesus. And that's why it's our joy on this Reformation Sunday to focus, as we said, on our epistle reading from Romans chapter 3, where we hear all about that good news. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them up to Romans chapter 3. We'll be starting at verse 20. And here we have an absolutely clear depiction of what that gospel message is. Now, 500 years ago, so many people were either not being taught or even being led astray. They were being told that they had some part to play in their salvation, that good works are required in order to be saved. And we see why it was, and it still is, absolutely necessary for us to hear what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3. He writes, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's clear we are not saved by our good works. Our our righteousness does not come from following the law. Our righteousness comes from what Jesus has done for us. We are made righteous by the righteous one. That is, we have been justified before God, not because we earned it, but because Jesus has earned it for us and has given us salvation as a gift. We are forgiven and redeemed and saved by God's free mercy and grace. That is absolutely clear. But where I'd like to spend a little more time this morning is on something that may not seem as clear, at least at first, because there's this phrase that follows this verse, and and in particular, a word that may raise a question or two in our minds. The word is propitiation. Again, to hear that last verse we just heard, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so the question is, what is propitiation? Well, if you look up the word in the dictionary, you'll find a good definition. You'll find that to propitiate something means to appease or reconcile. 
So if there are two parties and one has offended the other, to propitiate means to make them right again. So Paul is saying that the redemption Jesus offers us is a propitiation, a reconciliation between us and God accomplished by his sacrifice. But even that definition doesn't quite do the word full justice. Because in the Bible, propitiation points us to something even bigger. There's a bigger story going on here. And to fully understand that story, we need to go back. We need to go all the way back to the beginning. Back to creation and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember, in the beginning, God was with Adam and Eve before sin ever entered the world. And God, who is obviously holy, could dwell face to face with his people and walk with them because they were made in his own image. That is, they were holy too. They weren't the same thing as God, but they were sinless. And so all was perfect, creator with his creation. But all that changed when Adam and Eve fell into sin. And they could no longer dwell in the presence of a holy God. They couldn't bear it, and neither could God. Now, when we think about that word holy and holiness, we often think about perhaps being morally perfect, which is true, but it's much more than that. God is holy not only because he is morally perfect, but because he is the ultimate source of morality, as well as goodness and life and justice. And God is also holy because he is unique. He is set apart. There is none other like him. He is the only creator. He is the only God. Think of it like a sun. The sun emanates power and strength and rays of light. And all of those things are good things. They're actually life-giving to us. But if you were to get too close to the sun, you would actually be burned up and destroyed. Its goodness would overwhelm you. And so the same is true with God. Getting close to a holy God is not possible for us as sinful human beings. And anytime we see that in the Bible, God showing up, being close to sinful human beings, it is a terrifying event for them because they know what it means. And not because God is bad, mind you, but because he is so good. And for God's people in the Bible, and for us still today, this presents a problem. How can we ever expect to dwell in the presence of a powerfully good and holy God? Well, amazingly, in the Bible, we see it happen after the Garden of Eden, beginning in the second book of the Bible in Exodus. God gives Moses instructions on how to construct the tabernacle, which was the tent of meeting that would always be at the center of the Israelite camp. And this would be the place where God's presence would dwell once again here on earth. And inside that tabernacle, at the very innermost part was a room called the Holy of Holies. And this is where the throne of God would be set, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where his presence could be found. And on top of that ark was the mercy seat, it's called. The mercy seat was the cover of the ark. It was made of pure gold, as was the ark. It had two cherubim on either side facing inwards. 
And when the Israelites were told to set up their camp in their, in their wandering in the wilderness, the, the tabernacle was set up. And this seat then was the place where God's presence that was always going ahead of them, this is where his presence would rest. It was in the form either of a cloud by day or fire by night so that all could see it and know that God was with them. And God told Moses that he would meet, them, meet him there at the mercy seat and speak to him there. Now that's an incredible thing when you think about it. Not since the Garden of Eden had God dwelled so intimately, so dramatically with his people. But you see, there was still a problem, the same problem as it had been before. The problem of a holy God and sinful people. Now, sin is more than just a few wrong choices made here and there. Sin is an infectious disease that makes everything it comes into contact with unclean. Sin vandalizes and corrupts what God otherwise made good and perfect. Sin kills and destroys. It destroys life. It destroys our life. And sin-filled and dying people cannot coexist with a holy and perfect God. At least not on our account. So what was it that made that possible? Well, remember, God's presence dwelled right there on the mercy seat. And that's significant because it's not called by God a judgment seat. It's not called a destruction seat. It's called a mercy seat. And so right away it tells us that God intends to dwell with his people in mercy. And he made a way for his holiness not to destroy his people, but instead to make them holy as well. And so that's why God in his wisdom decides to institute sacrifices. God decided in his mercy that by the shedding of blood, the shedding of animal blood through sacrifice, he would forgive the sins of the people. And more specifically than that, there was uh, a day once a year, the holiest day on the entire Jewish calendar. It was called the Day of Atonement, that the high priest would become the only person who would ever enter the Holy of Holies, that inner room. And after offering a sacrifice for his own sins, he would then prepare a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. And he would do that by taking two goats and they would cast lots to designate between the two goats. The one goat would be called the, the scapegoat. That's where that term comes from, scapegoat. And so the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat, confessing over it all the sins of the people of Israel. And then he would send it away, let it escape away out into the wilderness. God permitted that scapegoat to bear all the iniquity of the people of Israel out of the camp and into the wilderness. As for the other goat, this goat would be sacrificed. And the high priest would bring its blood into the Holy of Holies. And he would sprinkle its blood directly on the ark, directly on that mercy seat of God, as well as the rest of the tabernacle. And by this action, this sacrament, the sins of Israel were atoned for. The blood shed on the mercy seat made it possible for an unholy people to be holy once again, to receive his forgiveness and to dwell in the presence of God. 
to receive his mercy and grace and forgiveness. So what does all this mean? Well, we've talked about how important this mercy seat is, the place where God dwells and the place where he makes atonement for his people. In Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, the word is kaporeth, which basically means to cover. That's where the word atonement comes from. It it means to cover the sins of the people. And that's why the, the Day of Atonement is called Yom Kippur. Yom meaning day and Kippur meaning to cover. And it all comes back to the place where it happens, that mercy seat of God, the Kaporeth. In Greek, the language of the New Testament, the word for mercy seat is hilasterion. So where we see hilasterion in the New Testament, it literally means mercy seat. But, but I'll tell you, it's not always translated as mercy seat. Sometimes another word is used in English. Any guesses on what that word might be? I'll give you a hint. We saw it in Romans chapter 3, 25. And the word is propitiation. So let's look at that verse one more time. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a hilasterion, as a mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. So do you see what's happening there? Paul is saying that Jesus is both the mercy seat, the place where God dwells, as well as the sacrifice whose blood is shed to make atonement for our sin. That when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, he is the propitiation, the mercy seat offering for our sake. The the Apostle Paul is intentionally using this language to connect the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus with the greater story of salvation that had been going on for thousands of years before him. In fact, all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing forward to the once-for-all sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross. You see, it's absolutely critical for us as Christians to see the Bible not just as a series of disconnected stories, not having anything to do with each other. No, God's word, sola scriptura, tells the unified story of salvation that God has been working out since the beginning of time. And through his apostle Paul, we are shown that just as God made a way for the Israelites to dwell in his holy presence, so also did Jesus make a way for us to dwell with our holy God forever. Just as God's presence was truly with his people in the cloud and the fire, so is God's presence with us in Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us and whose body is the true tabernacle and the true temple of God. Just as the scapegoat was released outside the camp, bearing the sins of the people, so our scapegoat went outside the city up the hill of Golgotha. Just as the blood of the atoning sacrifice was brought into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the sins of the people, so the blood of the perfect Lamb of God was put forward by God as the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. And just as the mercy seat was God's throne here on earth at the Ark of the Covenant, 
So Jesus chose the greatest mercy seat of all, his cross as his throne, where our king was lifted high for all the world to see and believe. The Bible is telling us God's unified story of salvation. And what's more, God invites you to find your place within his story. A story that's been unfolding for thousands of years since the beginning of time. And amazingly, God has made this story your story as well as mine. And just pausing today on this one word, propitiation, has been yet another example of how we can see this wonderful and beautiful history become ours in Jesus Christ. And you know, this is another reason why the Reformation was so important, because sometime around the 1500s, or or perhaps a little before, somewhere along the way, God's story of salvation got lost for most people. It was darkened and obscured. The, The light of the gospel was still burning, but it was burning dimly. But the power of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ working in the hearts and the minds of brave men and women we call the reformers helped them rediscover that story. And so people like Martin Luther, among many others, helped the world see that light burn brightly again. Many people say the Lutheran church began 500 years ago or whenever it was. No, it didn't. Read the Book of Concord, our Lutheran confessions, what what it is we teach and confess in the Lutheran church. It says over and over again that our churches teach and confess as the one holy apostolic Christian church has always taught and confessed. The church that extends back to Jesus and beyond, the church that extends to the prophets and to Moses and to Abraham and all the way back to Adam and Eve. You see, the reformers were reclaiming that ancient story, God's story of salvation in this world, which had once been lost, but now was joyfully found again. And so what does this mean for us today? Well, probably so many things that we won't be able to mention, at least not all of it. But but I will mention this. What the reformers and the apostle Paul help us see, is what Jesus came to do. That is, Jesus came to connect us into something much bigger than ourselves, into God's greater salvation story, which has been going on again since the beginning of time. And I would argue this, that more than anything else, this notion is what can help us connect to a world that seems to have lost its way again. How many people today, young people, yes, but people of all ages, truthfully, they are seeking for some kind of significance in their lives, something bigger than themselves, more meaningful than themselves, a history that truly matters. And so people go searching for it in all sorts of different places, none of which actually pan out meaningfully. But we, the people of Christ, have been given the true answer. And dare I say it, we have on our hands another reformation, not of the church necessarily, but of the world. We have been gifted the bright light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we share that light with a world that desperately craves it. 
the light of the one who was put forward as our propitiation, our mercy seat of God by his shed blood to be received by faith. And by this faith, which is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast, it connects us to God's greater story. And we can't help but go out from here and joyfully share that story so that all might believe. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.